Welcome to episode 43, would you believe it, of The Professor and the Hack. Uh, I am the hack, Hugh Rimmonson, and uh, with me, the professor, Peter Van Onselen, national political editor for the 10 Network. How are you, Peter? How are you holding up? Good, Hugh. It's not too bad, this social isolation thing. You've just got to find things to do and find space where you can. What about you? It's, it's harder on your end because you're, you're individually isolated from your family, aren't you? Well, that's true. Um, I find with social isolation, you learn who your friends are. And it t- as it turns out, I don't have any. So um, <laughs> that's, the brutal truth has finally been revealed. Uh, but yes, I, I, I don't get to, um, I don't have any of the glories even a hug with the kids because they're, they're in separate isolation with my, my wife as she, um, as she goes through chemo and uh, has to be kept well clear of any viruses. But it's working all right. We FaceTime. Well, yeah, well, so, it's still hard. I mean, I do feel for you as far as that goes. I mean, it, it, the, you know, the, the, I've been reading articles about uh, different people, including in the media, who, you know, singles or, you know, individuals who are therefore isolated on their own uh, in, in their setup. But your situation is even harder than that because not only are you exactly that, but then, you know, you've got that uh, that distance to your loved ones uh, with your wife and your children. So hang in there, mate. Yeah, I do, I do, have, I do have one powerful thing. And that is that I know I'm isolating for a purpose. Um, you know, I know the names of the people I'm trying to protect, you know, and I care about them very much. And I did have a feeling for the thing which emerged this week out of uh, Victoria, where um, Daniel Andrews, the question was, is if you don't actually live with your partner or your crush or however you want to define it, can you get across town to catch up with them? Uh, Daniel Andrews' initial position was very stern. No, you can't. And then there was a bit of dismay and the chief medical <laughs> officer of Victoria comes up and says, no, look, that's okay. Uh, you know, you can, you can go see your partner. You know, we're all adults here. Go see your partner. Uh, to which immediately social media uh, sprung with a question, oh, uh, how many partners are you allowed to have? <laughs> Suggesting that uh, the hookup culture might survive all of this, uh, you know, if, if we do it, the other end of it. But look, I'm yeah, serious, look, but, but, but sorry, would you, just before you just before you do on that, I mean, you, you speak a little bit to some of the inconsistencies here as well, though, because it is fascinating. We we can expect and accept inconsistencies from one state to the other because there are different levels of the pandemic in different states. But for example, just this morning, you know, I saw that Victoria is saying that fishing is out and not counted, whereas yesterday the New South Wales Police Commissioner specifically said if you consider fishing your exercise, you can fish just don't do it on a crowded pier or something like that. So it, it is really interesting where the lines sit. For example, in Absolutely. Sydney. And, you know, if fishing is your exercise, I've got a son-in-law who is a mad surfer. He cannot live unless he's got in the water every day. And mm. with the beaches closed, that's driving him nuts. Now, he'll make the argument that there's a lot more exercise to be had in surfing than there is to be had in fishing. Um, oh, absolutely. And so how come? And so he's... He's now taken up fishing with somewhat, uh, you know, bizarre results, but um, chiefly, chiefly managed to bring home bits of rock that he snagged uh, and, and, and kelp. But, um, but, you know, these are the inconsistencies. I guess the reality of it is that we ought to keep a bit of a sense of humour, realise what the main game is and try to, you know, keep our focus on that. But I do feel, I'm not a surfer myself, but I do feel for surfers for whom... It is both exercise and mental balm and, you know, to go out in the water every day. It's a huge Australian thing. 
And with the beaches closed, particularly the city beaches, you run the risk of one of these $1,000 fines if you're out there on your surfboard. And um, you, can, you can feel that that is, uh, is going to be difficult for some people. Yeah, absolutely. But on the other hand, we've got free childcare. Whoever saw that coming? Oh, no, and particularly from a Liberal government. You know, they, they managed to outflank uh, a lot of the calls that were coming from Labor and the Greens for action in this space, which had been continuing for quite a while. Uh, but then all of a sudden, that announcement, you know, free, free for everyone, uh, whether you send your child or not, uh, your places are kept. Uh, there are some little details beyond that. But in essence, it's designed to do two things, to give parents the surety that they've got places and that they can send their children when they feel it's safe to do so. But more importantly, I think, from the government's perspective, it's about guaranteeing that all these centres have the dollar-for-dollar dollar value of children, whether they go or don't go, so that they don't collapse uh, when we come out the other side of this. Yes, look, you can see a, a definite uh, sense in this. Um, obviously, the childcare only goes up to a certain age, up to, up to school age. Uh, so the question of schooling remains somewhat unresolved because now, if not already in them, we're, we're, we're close upon the, um, the April holidays and it's not clear uh, whether schools will re resume at any level coming out of it. Gladys Berejiklian in, in New South Wales said it was too early to say that you should look at medical advice at the time. I understand that actual attendance at schools has dropped down to 5%. Uh, across much of New South Wales, as a 95% of kids have been kept home. So, um, you know, you wonder about, you know, what's going on with schools, but the childcare stuff will stay open. Uh, I note in passing, of course, that famously um, uh, a, a chunk of the Peter Dutton family wealth uh, is held up in childcare centres, his wife runs them, until the last election he was as he listed on his uh, uh, personal interest, the direct beneficiary of a family trust that ran uh, two childcare centres in, uh, in Brisbane. And, um, you know, I wonder whether he gave his advice, as he has done previously on matters of childcare policy, uh, or, uh, or kept calmly to the sidelines on this particular one. But um, there you are, he's got other fish to fry at the moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, you'd like to think that he certainly would declare any interest there, but it's you know it's also well known. But he's he's also I think he might even still be in in isolation uh, out the other side of the coronavirus, having to patch into things. But I I stand to be corrected on that. It's it's a, certainly Boris Johnson. Look, he he may well be, but he's 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 active again. He was on uh, he is, he is. Radio Two GB with Ray Hadley, explaining why they now have a significantly harder line against these cruise ships than they had when the Ruby Princess just docked ashore and, uh, and everyone just walked off. And Can we talk about fifty cases? I'd like to. Can we? Yeah. Oh, look, I'd love to. I mean, I, I, I'm caught on this one because on, on the one hand, I was, you know, one of these bleeding hearts when it came to the MV Tampa back in 2001 and, you know, and, and the hardline position that the government took on that. But I take a very hard line on these cruise ships for the same logical reason. My view then was that we could absorb the people that were coming on board and that there was good reason to do so and that they were in distress and, and off you go. Here, I don't think we can absorb the over 8,000 people that are on these uh, a dozen or so cruise ships off the Australian coast. Now, that's not to say that people don't come off one by one in medical emergencies, but I'm calling out 
the cruise line companies here, you know, whether it's Carnival or some of the other ones, Carnival seems to be the main one. You know, they, they deliberately put them their ships under a flag from a Caribbean country so that they have low tax areas so that they can avoid all of our industrial rules and all the rest of it when they're on the high seas with their workers. So I have an attitude where when the business expects to be able to access taxpayer-funded isolation in hotels here or anything of that order, I sort of think, well, no, you have absolutely no rights to that because you've flouted the tax structures up until now as a business. But then where my sympathy comes, that's how I feel towards the executives and the business, but it's the poor buggers who get exploited by those very decisions of the executives and the business who are the people that work on the ship who are on there now in these awful petri dishes for spreading a virus off our coast who are just getting sicker and sicker with no resolution. So it's such a wicked problem. Yeah, so not much sympathy for the actual carnival cruise um, op- you know the operators at the top end of the tree, but much more sympathy for those on the boat. I did note that there was exactly. a kind of almost a uh, how dare you keep us offshore? You know we've brought all this business to you over the years, the cruise ship oh, business, uh, to which we could well argue, well we've brought you a whole bunch of customers and a very lovely port that you can sell to your customers and all that sort of business. But look, there is a fair bit to this because, um, as we now know, there's about eight, eight and a half thousand people on these uh, ships, uh, eight or nine of them offshore, I don't know if, if one or two of them might perhaps have taken the message and, and gone at least as far as international waters. Because Royal um, Caribbean is the one doing that, isn't it? I know you've been reporting on this, Hugh. It's Royal Caribbean that seem to be heeding the government's wishes, but Carnival that aren't. Is that right? Well, um, it, it, at the moment, most of them are not heeding the wishes uh, in right. the sense of going outside into international waters. Now, the 8,500 on board, people kind of think, oh, these are all the tourists. It's not the tourists. Uh, it's it's overwhelmingly crude. So mm. these things are quite heavily crude. So you've got uh, a crewing system of of roughly one to, th- to three passengers. So one staff member and three passengers. Now, very few of those people are actually involved in driving the ship, you know, the mechanics and, and so on. They're not up on the bridge or down in the engine room. They're basically uh, what might be called hospitality, cleaning, catering, entertainment, all those sure. other kinds of things that go into making it an experience. Uh, so it's quite highly staffed. That's why we've got to the eight and a half thousand. Now, and they come from many, many different nations, as the point has been made. So what you've got now is a situation where, as you call them, petri dishes floating around, as you say, when they get seriously ill, they have been bringing them ashore and they've been going off to our hospitals. The New South Wales Police Commissioner, his argument is if you let them all on, that's eight and a half thousand. Uh, we have to presume that at least some of them have it, even if they're in the early symptomatic stage or non-symptomatic stage, they, they will fall to us. Um, meanwhile, Peter Dutton on Ray Hadley saying he believes they're lying about how many sick people they've got on board. So they've, they've hired Aspen uh, Medical, which is a company with, which has a fantastic record in covering things like the Ebola crisis. They got a mm. contract to go into the Ebola crisis in West Africa, and they didn't lose a single staff member, not even local staff, when everyone wow. else was expecting death tolls. They're, they're a really strong Australian company. So they're now going out there or will be going out there to test to see if, in fact, it is as bad as people say. Now, uh, the dilemma is that if they've got it on board and they're being told, go back to your home port where you are flagged, some of them are flagged in Bermuda, for example, or other places, 
A, it's a hell of a long way to Bermuda with a whole bunch of people getting sick and dying on board. Uh, secondly, when they roll up to Bermuda, as a lot of these things are flagged in Bermuda, if these ships are going to overload the Australian health system, what are they going to do to Bermuda? So oh, you can yeah. see that the captains are kind of like trying to use this ancient provision under the international law of the sea, which is to declare distress and seek safe harbour. And I spoke to Professor Don Rothwell, who is one of the world's real experts in international law of the sea from ANU. And he says very similar to the Tampa, because the captain of the Tampa declared that he was in distress and sought safe haven at, on Christmas Island. That was actually the legal justification for bringing, once you take it on board, over 400 uh, boat people from a sinking boat to get to Christmas Island. And the Howard government, of course, as we all know, sent out the SAS took over the ship, said, we'll remove your source of distress. They did remove, obviously, the asylum seekers and push them off to Nauru, but they did take them off the ship. So if that's any kind of a precedent, and there are many other precedents in international law, um, what is the precedent that applies? Do we still continue to take them off the ship? In which case, they're bound to stay off our waters mm. because See, we are the best hope available. It's interesting because I, I, I take different views, even though they're similar situations at maritime law between the two scenarios, because I believe that we had the capacity to take those refugees. I don't accept the argument uh, of, of, you know, what had to be done as, as anything other than largely a political manoeuvre at the time by the Howard government. Uh, you know, I, I don't doubt that John Howard believed what he was doing as well, but I think it was heavily about the politics of the interception and, and Australia having the capacity to take those refugees but not wanting to for other policy reasons. Whereas here, I actually become quite utilitarian about this, greatest good for the greatest number. I think that we've got a health system which is already getting heavily tested, uh, which is only going to get more heavily tested as this crisis develops. And I think it could be overrun and overwhelmed, as the New South Wales Police Commissioner has talked about, if we take in these people writ large, as opposed to simply, which I guess is partly what you're saying as well, Hugh, but in, unless we do it in a way which is very guaranteed that we push them on, they're not Australian citizens. Yeah, well, no, that's true. And I mean, the, the, the argument that they're putting on the ships is they don't need many people to get these ships back to home ports because most of them have nothing to do with the running of the ship and they don't have yeah. any passengers as paying crew, as paying, you know, customers. And so the argument is bring them in, quarantine them. Most of them will turn out to be okay, uh, have charter flights ready, get them off to other places and, and they're no longer on our books. Anyone who is sick, of course, um, then that becomes our problem. And, uh, but, but at least it's somewhat under a controlled situation. It's not pretty. There's no doubt about it. But there's another element to this, and that is there are hundreds of Australians still bombing up and down in various cruise ships exactly. internationally. And if we uh, aren't doing it, we have absolutely no capacity to bring leverage to other ports uh, where there are Australians. There, there are nearly 100, I think it's 96 Australians, currently off Montevideo in Uruguay. Uh, they're on uh, a ship called the Greg Mortimer, named after one of the Australians who uh, was on the first uh, expedition that climbed Everest. Um, and the Greg Mortimer is a ship, it's a beautiful looking ship that is purpose-built for the Antarctic cruise experience. Uh, they have, um, the vast majority of the people on board are Australians, and they 
are stuck there. They've got people with fever on board. They've taken one person off that after a lot of negotiation, they got them off into a hospital and is now in intensive care in Montevideo. Uh, his prospects at the moment, I'm told, are grave. Um, he, he could pull through, but they're deeply concerned about him. They're deeply concerned about the others. But the point is the Uruguayans aren't letting more ashore. And there's, at the moment, no particular reason how we can argue that they should let them ashore. And there are others off New York and off other places as well. Hugh, we need to take a break. Uh, when we come back, though, really keen to get your thoughts on how we think Scott Morrison is travelling, not just in terms of his handling of this coronavirus crisis, but how he's getting on as a human being as well. Uh, we've seen some real emotion in some of his recent commentary. Uh, it's easy to forget. Politicians, they're just like us. They're humans, almost. Well, they're not just like us, but they are humans. <laughs> we'll talk to you in a moment. <laughs> G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. This is the Professor and the Hack and uh, Professor Peter Van Onselen. You, you, were, you were seeing signs of... Uh, Signs of the of the real Scott Morrison, I suppose, in, in the last twenty four hours or so. Yeah, it was really interesting. I mean, he um, he got quite emotional uh, when he was doing a media conference. It was the one where he was talking about the new childcare measures, you know, making it free, and then some of the industrial relations measures as well that his attorney general and IR minister Christian Porter was talking about. And so it was a pretty significant media conference. But one of the journalist questions was essentially just breaking away from all of that. How are you doing? You know, it was just sort of asking uh, who must be a very tired uh, and stressed prime minister, however much he tries to avoid that outwardly, just how he was traveling. And he sort of contextualized things at home in the context of his grandparents and the stories he's been told about the great depression. Now, don't get me wrong. You, know, you can be very cynical about this and say, being prime minister of the country, you're probably able to get through this a little bit more easily as far as some of those hardships go uh, than what his family uh, historically might have. But, emotionally it's the same isn't it you know the the stresses and the pressures and and he he got a bit of a quiver in his voice i, I thought he was going to tear up at, at one point as he was discussing it all and he was talking about the comfort of his family joining him down in canberra and he even had a bit of a lighter moment laughing about saying yes they're a comfort to me joining me but hopefully i'm a comfort to them them joining me as well and uh, and it was it was quite touching actually to to see that side of him because Often when you see Scott Morrison, he gets very narky when he's asked questions and, and that human side doesn't come out as much as it perhaps could or should. But I think it's good to see it rather than a sign of weakness. And I actually think uh, he is stepping up in this crisis, I have to say. And, and, and I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this, Hugh. But I say he's stepping up because it's an interesting situation. You know, I, I think he does have a tendency as a personality not to like to be questioned and to get grumpy when questioned and to have a bit of a my way or the highway attitude. But all, all of which, by the way, are qualities or not or the opposite of qualities, which are far from ideal in a crisis scenario like this. However, I think this crisis being so off the charts in terms of its significance and its implications and the weighty decision-making, I actually think even though those are elements of Scott Morrison's natural personality, I actually think the crisis is so grave that he's actually punching past those 
because he wants to hear what his inner circle are thinking. And he's getting a bit more acclaim now from the state premiers, even from the opposition, and certainly from the colleagues of his that I speak to, that those elements that they saw in him in the past aren't in the present. The crisis is actually elevating him, not overwhelming him. You know, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because there's a point where, uh, particularly with Morrison's personality, and uh, I don't know him as well as you do, but I have known him over a period of years, that he has that desire to control uh, the environment mm, around mm. them, to play the environment around them. And in the early days, that's an enormous stressful situation of this crisis, is that it starts to burst out of his control. And you could see after his first decisive business, calling it a pandemic, shutting down the flights from China, there was then that period of a couple of weeks when it all went wobbly. And, um, you know, the messages were all over the place. And, and I guess this was the time when he was actually starting to absorb what it might mean. You know, he might have even in the first day thought, gee, how can we do this and still deliver a budget's surplus? You know, this, yeah, you know, yeah. He might have still thought that the old, the old paradigms might still somehow or other come through this. And then at a certain <laughs> point, there's a recognition that, in fact, nah, um, this is well, enormous. And in fact, at that point, you're really trying to surf an avalanche going down the hill. And it's, but, the, but the key thing is, is that it's not a crisis in its fundamentals of his making. The only, the only thing now of his making is how do you respond to it? And in that sense, he's not to blame for the fundamental crisis. So he doesn't, he's relieved of that awful sense of, um, geez, what have I done? I've created something that's destroying the nation. He's in fact just saying, it's my, now my job to, you know, keep some blood going through the artery of the nation. And, and it becomes in some ways, you imagine, a little easier when, when you, you've totally committed to the fight of trying to keep people going. And that's why you've seen him almost, almost, you know, um, almost in a, in a, in a, a happy way it's hard to describe but almost almost like on the balls of his feet announcing the sorts of policies that would have been unthinkable even just a few weeks ago well yeah 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 yeah. see he's, he's embracing the reality i think of what has to be done because it has to be done as opposed to some of those prisms that he might otherwise be contextualizing events and and circumstances in which you mentioned just before i i completely agree with that it's really fascinating almost as a quasi-political psychological study because I think early on, he was in a sort of mild state of denial, okay? So that was him off to the footy and, you know, embracing the concept of shaking hands, even when premiers weren't wanting to do so as he rocked up to these meetings. And and you feel, or I felt at least, like some of this was all just the facade of politics. As you say, how do I perhaps still manufacture, if not a budget surplus, my next step was how do I avoid a recession by plugging the the money in in a way which avoids two quarters of consecutive quarters of negative economic growth which means we technically never fell into recession and then when that couldn't happen then there was almost anger as he could see that things were getting away from him and that's when he was snapping at journalists and even snapping at the Australian people as well you know do the right thing da 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 and that was that was I thought a symptom of him being a little bit late he wasn't as late as other countries so this isn't a heavy critique but he was later than he perhaps could or should have been but then all of a sudden where I've seen him now looking like he's growing into the job is when the gloves just completely came off, didn't they? $130 billion spend uh, over six months to basically subsidise people's salaries so that they don't lose their jobs and so that businesses can stay afloat. 
all of a sudden that's him just throwing the orthodoxy out the, out, out the door. He's not thinking about re-election. He's not thinking about avoiding things for political reasons or how he presents himself. He's just trying to bloody well save the country as best he can. And aren't we lucky that we actually are the lucky country with a low quantum of debt to GDP as a ratio that we can do this from a starting point uh, which is more manageable rather than somewhere like the United States. They start with over 100% of debt to GDP. We start with, I think, 18% of net debt to GDP, uh, which we can then afford to blow to save the country. And he's embraced that. You know, he hasn't been stuck in liberal political ideology. He's got people now on his right flank, deals like uh, Andrew Bolt saying there's no big deal uh, here. Don't worry about it, people, because there's only X number of debt at this point in the 20s. Missing the point entirely. Uh, that this is about trying to stave off all manner of crises by how people act. You've then also got civil libertarians now complaining. And look, I have concerns about civil liberties, but the complaints, Hugh, uh, that the PM is copying it from all sides, but they're often just micro voices. I think most Australians are now watching him and saying, you know what, I'm actually a bit calmer now because I don't feel like you're a politician. I feel like you're just a leader trying to get us through this. And he'll make mistakes, but he's trying. And the other thing is, is that we've now, in a sense, we've landed. Whereas there's that period where the, the restrictions every day were changing and, uh, you know, would schools be open, would they not be open, and states are closing schools or saying that they're going to go to holidays early and all that sort of stuff. Day by day, there seemed to be this, uh, you know, policy response tussle going on. And he didn't seem to have control over that, mm. whereas now, now we're, whatever that, that sort of arc of dissent was, we've landed to wherever it is well, and, and all this money's flowing out. Yeah. And on that, I mean, I think we've also embraced the nature of the Federation. Initially, the tension that you refer to, you know, looked like he, it was eroding his authority. Premier's saying, we're going to do this, even though the Prime Minister just said, we're going to do that. I actually think there's now a healthy tension between premiers and the prime minister, as well as a good cooperative working relationship through the national cabinet, which has become... A little respect. Well, I think that's right, because originally I think it was tokenistic. I think the design of the national cabinet was really just, if you like, a political plaything so that he could appear consultative, even though it was really just him just hammering on. Whereas it's become a real thing now. You know, it meets regularly, not just once a week, far from it. Uh, and I think there is a tolerance now uh, by the Prime Minister of Premiers doing their own thing. I mean, WA is actually locking down its borders in a full-on sense, not just in a self-quarantining sense if you want to arrive, which I think is fascinating in and of itself. They've been trying to do that for years. But, you know, there's, there's a healthy respect that the Federation requires different things from different states at different points in time because we are the geographical size of Europe but with a sparse population with quite different needs from state to state. And the PM is accepting that. And the fact that he's now accepting that and not worried about the politics of division or if he looks like he's lost authority or getting personally grumpy about it means that the premiers are also showing him more respect because there's less gameplay going on and more acceptance that, yes, he's the national leader, but we, in adequate consultation with him, will do the things that we need to for our state. And I have to say, uh, the Federation has been dysfunctional for some time. I think it's working really well at the moment. Yep, I think that's that's all fair comment. The one thing out of a press conference that it was actually the childcare announcement press conference that just tickled the back of my head was there was a reference to this six month pandemic. And it came a couple of times and I felt as if I wonder if this is some massaging that's coming from the uh, you know, a talking a new talking point. Um, referring to this as a six month pandemic. 
the six months, of course, relates, you know, conveniently to the $130 billion in the JobKeeper allowance that's uh, been mm. announced. Uh, from what I can see, there is no reason to believe this is a six-month pandemic. Oh, um, I agree. And, and this is the next problem, is that, again, we're being told, you know, there's fantastic work being done out of Melbourne on a vaccine. Uh, there's other efforts already underway on trials on potential vaccines happening in the United States. We understand it's coming out of China. Um, but they're saying that this uh, truncation of the process by which you deliver a, a vaccine, if you look, uh, Anthony Fauci, again, we looked at him at the Infectious Diseases National Director in the United States is saying uh, 12 to 18 months, probably 18 months. Others have been saying, and you know, scientists are in this field say, look, that itself seems unbelievably optimistic because you're starting with a new virus. It's not like the flu virus where you, you just get the seasonal variation and just add it to what's essentially a vaccine, which is already in existence so that you can purpose build it to that year's particular strain. This is something that new has to be developed and be tested. Now, it, wherever it lies, you have to realistically think that it's 12 to 18 months which includes mm. an entire new Northern Hemisphere winter um, and then off into the, the next winter that we've got. So the question to you, I guess, is when the $130 billion just on the JobKeeper allowance is spent in six months' time and the pandemic is still with us, what then? Oh, I'll, I'll tell you straight away. Uh, excellent article uh, in the conversation by economics professor Richard Holden. Uh, he's based at UNSW. He's, I think he did his PhD at Harvard. He spent time at MIT in Chicago. He's, he's, he's one of the nation's true economic guns, I think, in academia. Uh, and he did a, a more popularized style of writing uh, in the conversation about exactly this. And I agree with him. His argument is, he said exactly what you just said, Hugh, about 12 to 18 months is the likely time frame around a vaccine and therefore how long the lockdown in one form or another will have to last. And he answered exactly what your question was. What happens after six months and $130 billion has been pushed out the door on the, the job recovery process? The answer is simple. Another $130 billion for another six months. And if necessary, another $130 billion for another six months. And, and where does what? the money come from? Where does the well, money come from? Yep, I'll tell you, I'll tell you. This is, this is again, he, he went into this. He's the economist, not me, although I've, I've studied economics but it is interesting the, the the issue here is we start with a triple a credit rating that bloody thing that both sides of politics kept tossing around where uh, actually matters now and we start with low debt even though it's been a political plaything to talk about oh our debt's grown to nearly 500 billion dollars net debt now and isn't that terrible actually those numbers are designed to alarm in a political sense in an actuality sense what matters is how much debt do we have to gdp that is to say, our annual GDP, what percentage of that do we have accumed as debt? We've only got 18%. Now, we had zero, that's true, but we had to spend our way out of the GFC. There might have been a little bit of mismanagement that went with that. We're still only at 18% debt to GDP as a starting point. And we have a AAA credit rating, which means we're one of the safest places uh, that you can lend money to in the world amongst countries, right? Now, here's how I, I'm, going to, I'm going to interrupt you just for one moment because that debt sure. to GDP automatically rises, even if we don't borrow another dollar, automatically rises because our GDP is shrinking. Exactly. So, so that, but bear with me. But, but it's all about allowing the GDP to regrow in the years ahead. And it might take some time. So think of it this way. And, and it's all about comparable starting points. 
we started 18%, the US over 100%, uh, other countries like Japan, I think over 200%. They've got limited capacity to borrow money to buy their way out of this problem. We can do it because we start from a good spot. Now, the next step is at the moment, interest, re- interest rates are low, very low, particularly for any country like Australia looking to borrow money to finance its way out of this mess. So you ask the question of how does this work? Essentially, they just issued government bonds, which various hedge funds, wealth funds, whoever it might be globally decides to buy because Australia is a safe place to park your money to let the government spend it to save their economy for all the reasons that we have a AAA credit rating. Now, if for some reason there are no buyers out there, sure, then quantitative easing comes into it and the Reserve Bank buys it and they do that by just printing money. Now, you don't want to do too much of that because that becomes a problem. Venezuela is the ultimate example of that where you're doing that to be able to fund your military and fund things like that in the longer term. But there is, some of it can happen uh, as long as it's quite targeted and cautiously done. But we start from an excellent position. And, and Richard Holden spelt all of this out. To put it in context for you, Hugh, even if we do this for 18 months and if we're pumping hundreds of billions of dollars out the door and we're pumping our debt to GDP ratio, yes, albeit under the current structure, from 18% to 100% to save us over 12, 18 or 24 months, it allows our economy to be okay to then kick on in the aftermath of that. And the actual cost of that in terms of servicing the debt, it ends up being somewhere between five and 600 bucks a year per Australian. Now that's not small, but it's a hell of a lot more manageable than millions more Australians falling out of work, which hits the bottom line of GDP growth anyway. And it shoves us into a depression post the recession, which is inevitable now. Uh, and I so think it's, people, it's worth doing. Five hundred, six hundred dollars a year if they thought that it gave them some insurance against, you know, the, the howling abyss that waits on the other side. That's exactly right. I mean, we're almost out of time now. Here. We've only got a matter of minutes. But it, it, the economics of this is fascinating. And Richard Holden, I keep naming this guy. Hopefully, he advertises with us next week. But he he's no lefty. Okay, this guy is a traditional right-wing economist uh, who doesn't believe in piling up debt unnecessarily and all the rest of it, but he's looking at the situation and he's saying, guys, don't underestimate the economic smashing that we're all going to get and that the world's going to get. There's no point in being where Australia starts this crisis if we don't now use that advantage to spend our way out of it to save our country, essentially, economically. This isn't some raving lefty saying do this. It's a guy who's fiscally prudent, but says when crises happen, ideology doesn't matter anymore. And this is exactly one of those moments. Okay, let let me just quickly put on my former foreign correspondent hat after spending a fair bit of time wading through failed states in the course of my Mm. uh, reporting days. If Australia is in this position, there are a great many countries that are are not in this position. Uh, there are already warnings that uh, a number of countries, untold numbers of countries, will find themselves completely bankrupt, uh, in danger of becoming failed yep. states. Uh, history shows failed states are awful things for the whole uh, global body of humanity because they become uh, the sources and the generators of all kinds of, but there's both internal suffering, famine, other stuff, war, civil wars, interstate wars, and, uh, and obviously they become places where terrorists and other sorts of bad actors yep. can find new homes as a kind of a cancer associated uh, with all of that. And the other thing as a foreign correspondent is look at this. The United States has surpassed 
China for the number of deaths. The United yep. States, that's in raw numbers. The United States has a third of the population of China. It is uh, richer per capita by a long way than China. As a failure of leadership, they had a warning which China didn't have. As an absolute failure of leadership, the United States is right now in the dock. No better example than by the governor of Georgia. Georgia is Atlanta is the capital uh, or is mm. the, the major city. Uh, Atlanta is the home of CNN. It has the Centers for Disease Control. It is the shiny city of the New South of the United States. The governor says he's only just learned in the last 24 hours that people can pass on this disease and not have symptoms. And you're thinking there is just one further insight into the utter failure not of intellectual capacity within the United States, but of leadership within the United States. And that's troubling yeah. uh, as we head into an election year. We're out of time, Peter. Uh, great, great chatting, chat. Hugh. Well, over the weekend, we'll, we'll, we'll get out another one of these podcasts uh, early in the new week. Stay with you then. You too, mate. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.